The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Mrs. Sarah Esther Crisp will now present her lecture, Mind Control, The Power of Our Thought. Thank you for coming. This is Mind Control, um, Power of Our Thoughts. And to begin with, there was, where's, am I talking too loud? You have to tell me if the volume's <laughs> okay. So uh, a number of years ago, actually it was right before the holiday of Yom Kippur. I don't think there was really any connection to that, but the fact that the timing worked out that way was pretty powerful. There was a story that went viral where um, an owner of a small family-owned market posted this uh, letter that he had received on Twitter. And what was so powerful about this story and the situation was that a man had walked into his store, asked for the owner, handed him an envelope, shook his hand, and left. When he opened it up, there was the letter that he posted with four $100 bills. I'm going to read you this letter. I actually have, because he posted it with the guy's writing. It's a pretty remarkable thing. You can see exactly how it looked. And I'm reading it exactly as he wrote it. And it says, I am a drug addict. About 11 or 12 years ago, I robbed this store with a gun. I do not use drugs anymore. And I feel I must make amends to the people I have hurt in the past. I came into your store around 9 or 10 o'clock in 2002 or 2003, and I got a six-pack of beer, and I asked for cigarettes. When the register opened to give me change, I pulled out a gun and took about $300 from the register and then drove away in a white car. I hope you will accept this money and find forgiveness. Peace be with you, Anonymous. So... What's remarkable is that the owner of this store gets this letter, has this interaction, has a number of different responses that he could do, anywhere from, I don't know, turning the guy in for armed robbery now that he has him on surveillance tape and handwriting and fingerprints and everything else under the sun. Instead, he posts the letter on Twitter along with a note. And his note reads, we were robbed about 11 or 12 years ago. Today, we surprisingly received this note from the robber and the stolen cash returned. This is truly inspirational and reminds us that there are plenty of good people in this world. To the anonymous person, we want to tell you that all is forgiven and thank you for your note. We don't care about the money. We are more inspired and touched by your act. We hope you find peace in life and prosperity. Best wishes. To me, this is mind-blowing on many, many, many levels. But the probability that over a decade ago you had a guy high on drugs rob a store, 
in the interim, between then and him coming back to this store, the owner could have, I don't know, maybe changed career directions after having a gun in his face, sold the store, moved, died. I mean, lots and lots and lots of things can happen over an 11-year period. This guy could have had the best intentions in the world and forgotten what store he robbed. He doesn't remember the year, but he remembered the address. That's pretty remarkable. And he showed up. I would venture to guess that if you asked this store owner 24 hours before this happened, what is one of the most traumatic experiences of your life? I don't know the guy, but I'm going to kind of guess that maybe armed robbery, having a gun in your face and your life at risk, probably up there, probably up there with the more traumatic things he experienced. 24 hours later, it becomes the most inspirational, transformative thing that had ever happened in his life. Now, in that 10-year period, we don't know at what, guy this, at what point this guy felt terrible, really wanted to make amends, felt horrible about what he did. We have no idea if he stole this money because he needed to pay for baby food and diapers or if he was buying drugs with it. We really don't know. I mean, it sounds like he was using at the time. Now he's come clean. But so often when we don't know why something happens, which is the majority of the time, we create our own narratives. And our narratives are usually negative. Right. This person has no respect for hard work. This is somebody who couldn't care less about human life. This is, you know, the evils of society that shows us the worst of the worst in people. And now he's one of the good people in this world. He's described as the good person, the inspirational person, the person whose act made a difference and touched him. And it's so incredible that. We have the proof of this because very often when we have a positive spin on things, it's wishful thinking. Oh, that's cute. You can tell yourself that. Yeah, you tell yourself he was buying diapers with that money if that makes you feel better. But why? We don't know what the intentions were, what the motivations were, what the desperation was. So we have a choice. We can create the narrative that we want to be thinking and we want to be believing or one that makes us feel terrible and awful and used and taken advantage of and all of those negative things. And ultimately, we don't know which one is objective. And so our reality becomes whatever we create it to become. We are taught that there are three garments of the soul. And that those garments are thought, speech, and action. Machshava, dibor, and masa. And we have the garments that we wear, our, our clothing, how we are seen by those outside of ourselves. And our thought, speech, and action are the garments within that clothe our soul. There's a very powerful statement um, in the, from the prophet Micha, that reads, "Hagid l'cha adam, matov uma Hashem doresh mimcha, ki imasot mishpat ba'avad chesed ba'atznei alechet imashem alokecha." 
basically what is it that God wants from us. And it boils down to these three kind of basic things that we should have justice, we should have loving kindness, and we should walk modestly with our God. These three things relate to these three garments of the soul. So thought relates to justice, speech to loving kindness, and action to this walking modestly with our God, how we really interact with the world around us um, from that perspective. There is a very fascinating law in halacha, in Jewish law, that tells us that there are five situations that prohibit a husband and wife from being sexually intimate. Five situations that are not overarching, meaning they are not things that relate in general as rules. For example, when somebody is sitting shiva when they're in mourning, relations are prohibited. Um, There are certain days of the year, relations are prohibited. Nothing to do with a woman's menstrual cycle, nothing to do with any of those other things. Five situations unique to that specific couple that if any of them are happening, prohibit them from sexual intimacy. Any idea what those five are? All right, yeah. So that would be overarching. More and and not so clear cut, but uh, I'll I'll explain. Yeah. Okay, so if either one of them are angry, yes. Anger. A couple cannot be intimate if one of them is angry with the other. Obviously, if both of them are angry with each other, probably not happening. Number two, college students should love this. If either partner is drunk, if either partner is drunk, relations are prohibited. Three, and in no particular order, if the couple is divorcing. Four, If either partner is asleep. People used to always laugh when I would say that. They would think it was a big joke. And now, with the more awareness and discussion and the Me Too movement and real awareness of sexual assault, it has become very well known that, unfortunately, a lot of people are taken advantage of in their sleep. And being married does not allow for that. And five, and the most powerful and relevant to our discussion at hand, is if either partner is thinking about someone else. Why is that so powerful? All five of them clearly relate to one another. They all basically are indicating that if you are not Focused, sober, choosing, aware, and motivated by your love and focus on this other person, you are not in a position to be intimate. 
It can't be motivated by angry feelings. It can't be taking place if you're not in a position to be making that choice. And the fact that this is Jewish law and we're talking about a married couple where one could assume, okay, they're married. Clearly, they love each other and this is something that they'd be okay with. No, each and every single time has to be a conscious choice where both people are in a position to make that choice. It's a very empowering and powerful idea. The, the crux, though, that if a person is thinking about someone else is huge. Because generally, in Jewish law, it's not about our thought. It's about our speech. It's about our action. But very rarely is it about our thought. And here, I mean, now one would also hope, if somebody's thinking about somebody else, let's hope this person is smart enough to keep it to him or herself, right? Sharing that you're thinking about someone else, it, you're probably drunk. You're definitely going to cause anger, probably contemplating divorce, for sure falling right asleep and like <laughs> all strikes and we're out, right? We're going to have multiple problems if somebody decides to share that he or she is thinking about someone else. But what it's really telling us is, A, we can control our thoughts, that our thoughts are the foundation of what is going to come from that in terms of our speech and our action, that we have power over those thoughts, because very often people completely take away any accountability and responsibility for thoughts. Can't stop what I think about. I mean, it just popped into my head. It's not my fault I was thinking about. I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. I, I can think whatever I want. Leave me alone in my mind. And as long as I just say the right things and do the right things, it should be somewhat irrelevant what I want to think about privately. And Judaism is telling us, no, 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 it's relevant. It's going to impact what you say and what you do. Because if you're thinking one thing and saying and doing the opposite, you're inauthentic. You're not being true to yourself. You're living a lie in many ways. Our thoughts should be the basis for what we then say and what we do. There was a poll taken on CNN that said, are you cheating? Now, up until fairly recently, that was a pretty easy question to answer. It was yes or no, right? You were either physically involved with somebody other than your spouse, or you weren't. But there were a very long list of questions that followed. Those questions were when something exciting happens to you during the day, who's the first person you want to share it with? When a great new movie comes out, who do you want to see it with? When you're upset, who do you want to talk to? And it basically went through asking, who are you emotionally invested with? And if that person is someone other than your spouse, if your go-to person is the guy at work, you know, the woman you're doing a project with, the nanny, anybody else, if that go-to person is someone other than your spouse, you are cheating. Not physically, but emotionally. And now, especially, you have many, many, many marriages that have ended 
actually thanks to Facebook. <laughs> From people who have relationships, especially with exes and, you know, flames from high school and college that they reconnected with, right? We all have our Facebook friends. We might not see them. We might not talk to them. We might not ever meet them. But we can develop very close and intense relationships emotionally with these people. It used to always be felt that the only kind of affair that was destructive to a relationship was a physical affair. Now psychologists are saying that emotional affairs are actually much more destructive and damaging than the physical even. The physical, it's pretty easy to know if the person's cheating on you. If he or she is home, he or she is not with someone else. But if the person has to question who does this person want to be with? Who is this person thinking of? Who is this person yearning for? And if I have to question if that's me and I can't trust that someone's heart and mind are focused on me, then what? They can be anywhere. If their head's not there and their heart's not there, the fact that their body's there isn't so great, doesn't make up for it. If you were to do even a Google search, how many entries do you think come up for an emotional affair? There are a few synonyms for this. It's also called an affair of the heart, right? An emotional affair, emotional cheating, an affair of the heart. All pretty, pretty new concepts. Any guesses? Not all at once. Thousands. So for emotional cheating, I checked a few days ago, it was 70,300,000. An emotional affair was 75 million. And an affair of the heart was 270 million, 207 million, coming to a total of 352,300,000. Lots of searches, lots of articles, lots of data, lots of scientific evidence. And if we trust good old Wikipedia, Here's our definition of an emotional affair. An emotional affair is an affair which excludes physical intimacy but includes emotional intimacy and can begin as innocently as a friendship. And the affair is characterized by inappropriate emotional intimacy, deception and secrecy, and betrayal. So our thoughts have the ability to determine if a couple can consummate this love or if it's going to destroy that love. Now, the amazing thing about thought is that we can change it instantaneously. If you're thinking the wrong thing, think the right thing. And we can't multi-think. Our brains can handle one thought at any given moment. We can think quickly and change what we're thinking, but we can't think two things simultaneously any more than we can't say two words simultaneously. We can multitask, but we can't multithink, and we can't multi-speak. Which means if you have an unhealthy, negative, toxic thought in your head, by definition, you do not have a healthy, positive productive thought in your head. 
And if you believe or tell people sometimes, you know, the class question, so what are you thinking about? And you go, oh, nothing. Yeah, you're lying. You know you're lying. (laughs) We usually say nothing because the truth is not what I'm supposed to be thinking about. (laughs) Like, I'm going to say nothing because whatever I'm thinking is an inappropriate thought for the given situation. All right, so if, uh, if, if this should scare everybody, it says in the future that we won't need words, we'll communicate telepathically. That should frighten everyone. <laughs> Our thoughts, right? So if somebody's, you know, asking for advice or telling us about something serious, and we're like, gosh, I wonder if that's wallpaper or paint. <laughs> you know? And that's what, you know, is actually going on in my brain at that given second. So when it comes then to thought related to justice, Where is our justice ultimately or ideally determined? In the courthouse, right? Ideally. If our justice system is working correctly, our court system is designed for where justice should be meted out. Now, the entire time somebody's on the stand, we have, let's say, a murder trial, And you have the defendant up there, and you have those witnesses, and they're giving their, you know, view of what happened and their perception of what was taking place. What is the role of the jury? What are they doing? They're listening, which really means they're thinking, or they're supposed to be thinking. Our entire judicial system is predicated on needing to trust thoughts. I need to trust that you're listening to me and that you're hearing me out and that you're not sitting there as I am telling you I was not at the crime scene going, okay, I'm going to need hamburgers and hot dogs and ketchup and mustard. So my life is on the line. And we're trusting that those jurors are thinking about what they're supposed to be thinking or the judge, whoever is going to be handling this case. So we need to trust thought. It is our only ability to interact and have healthy relationships. And if our speech then is not reflective of that thought, then we have a disconnect. Another thing when it comes to to thought is we have the concept tracked good, designed good, that if you think good, it will be good, that our positive thinking is going to impact what comes from that, right? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, right? Like we are constantly pumping up this idea, even if you don't believe it. And there's this great quote I said in my other class, don't believe everything that you think. That ideally, it says with thoughts, machshava are the same letters as bismcha, with joy. That positive thinking And just telling ourselves and running these thoughts through our head, even if we're not fully buying them, will have that impact and have that effect. On the flip side, we see another scary reality. You know, I coach a lot of girls at risk, and something I deal with very often, which is very overwhelming, is is some of the issues a lot of teens face. But I can have a girl, she's 5'7", She weighs 90 pounds, and she tells me she's fat. Is she fat? So here's the very, very sad truth. 
She's fat as long as she thinks she's fat. She will not get help. She will not get better. She will not heal her anorexia, which is clearly the disorder that the rest of us can see that she's suffering from, will not be addressed until she's willing to change how she thinks. The second she recognizes there's a problem, I need help, I'm not healthy, now she can heal. But as long as she thinks she's okay, game over. It's not going to change because the person has to change how they think. From here, we go straight then into speech, which is why we very often see the first part of healing is when somebody can not only think they need help, but ask for it, state it, any 12-step program. My name is and I am. Wow. You can say that. You can say you're a drug addict. You can say you're an alcoholic. You can say you're anorexic. You can say it. Now you can heal. And by saying it, what has shifted? It's not just in my head anymore. I'm not the only one who knows it. There are witnesses. There's accountability. There are people who can help me with this. There's now support. I've made it. I've put it out there in the world. Once I say it, we just did a class on communication. So for anybody who's in there, I was explaining that the term abracadabra, right, the creating something from nothing when the magician pulls something out of the hat is Aramaic in its origin for abare kedibur. I create when I speak. When I say something, I bring it into reality. Who here has flown to Israel? All right. So if you have flown El Al or virtually any airline to Israel, you all know the drill, right? You get to the airport and you stand there and they come up to you and they ask you their series of questions. So, you know, who packed your bags? I did. Where have they been since they've been packed with me the whole time? Yep. They were in the shower with me this morning. Never left my sight, you know, whole time. You're bringing anything for anyone else? No. There is not a Jew in this world who has flown to Israel <laughs> without half a suitcase for their neighbor's cousin and grandmother and grandchild. And this one's setting a really, you know, half your suitcase isn't for you. We all bring stuff for other people. So it can feel like, really, why are we asking questions where we're sitting here and kind of lying, and they know we're lying, <laughs> and we're all going through this little game of the same questions, all right? It's not like somebody's going to be, or if somebody does say this, that they're not getting on that flight. Like, I mean, you know, that, that guy just gave you this whole package of wires to bring to his cousin in Ramallah. I mean, <laughs> aside from that, I'm not bringing anything for anyone. No, we're all saying no to the same questions. Why are they asking us them? Because they are trained not to listen to what we're saying. I mean, be stupid. You won't get on your flight. Tell them you have a bomb. You're not flying, right? It's made very clear certain things we don't joke about. We don't scream fire in a crowded area, and we don't say we have a bomb in an airport. Done. No one cares you were joking, right? So our speech does actually have an impact. Right? Exactly what we said, regardless of our intention. 
But what they're really trained to do is just get us talking, just get us speaking, because they are paying attention to what we're thinking, not what we're saying. Where do we see this even more powerfully? In Israel, you may have noticed, if you've been there over the last number of years, unfortunately, when we are in a situation where the terrorism are people willing to die, it's kind of a hard thing to combat, right? There's no hands up or I'll shoot. Yay. You know, like that's not a threat. They're willing to die. So the problem is always once we know a terrorist is infiltrated into Israel proper, that we know what's going to happen. We don't know where and we don't know when. So they can't have you know, um, security patrol everywhere, and they can't have screens and going through metal detectors. If anything, it sometimes creates the opposite problem. Now let's get everybody in a nice little place together while we're screening. So instead, they have a lot of plain clothes, sometimes security clothed officers who will walk around, and all they do is go up to groups of people in crowded areas and go, Shalom, mashlumcha, how you doing? That's it. That's all they do. And they have saved so many lives that way. Because if you can't look someone in the eye and answer the question, how are you doing? And if you're planning on blowing yourself to bits in the next 45 seconds, you may be slightly nervous. Elevated heart rate, sweating. If you can't say hello and answer that question, there's a reason. And it takes seconds to scream out, Mechabel, terrorist, and your cohesive group of people have dispersed. And the damage and deaths that will happen have been minimized, if not ideally, completely eradicated. That's it. But why the speech? Because we can hold a lot in until we have to talk. All right. Have you ever been so intensely emotional? It can be anger. It can be sadness. And you know you're okay if you don't have to talk. And it can be as simple as, like, what time is it? And the floodgates open. That's it. Don't make me answer that question. Right? It's a universal sign of terror and trauma, what happens? You can look anything, anywhere in the world. How do we respond to horror? (gasps) We cover our mouth. We almost need to, like, contain our voice inside of ourselves because it's too incredible and overwhelming and powerful to let it out. If I open my mouth, I might fall apart. It will all come out. People actually, they cover their mouth. We always... See, if it's both hands, one hand, not the eyes, you would think like, oh, I don't want to see that. No, (laughs) it's the mouth. I can't say it. I can't express it. I don't know what to to do with it. There is actually um, a very, a very powerful story that a woman in South Africa shared with me that kind of connects the thought and the speech. Um, She is she's a psychologist and she has a book she's putting out that I was working with her on and in it she shares the story of how they were robbed at gunpoint. Um, she was home alone. She had little children in the house. 
and a group of intruders came in and had them all lie face down on the carpet. And it was terrifying. I mean, just utterly terrifying. And she, her husband's not home, and she's got her kids there. And she was lying there with her kids when one of her small children started really freaking out. I mean, eventually he was just in a total panic and hysterical and screaming. And she was very nervous. It was going to agitate them, and they might do something to keep him quiet. So she knew she had to tell him that things were going to be okay, but she also knew if he could sense in her voice that she was lying, it would make it worse, right? If he sensed her panic and if he sensed her being overwhelmed, that would just unravel. So she really conjured up the strength and the belief, and she said, honey, they're not here to hurt us. These men are just very, very hungry, and they need money for food, and that's all they're here for. They're going to take the money they need, and they're not going to hurt us. They're going to leave us alone. You have to be calm. They're just hungry. One of the intruders walked up to her son, kissed him on the forehead, and said, your mommy's right. We're just very hungry. Robbed them blind, but didn't touch them. And she said she saw the power of needing to believe what she was saying and needing to create that reality. Ultimately, we have no way of knowing what could have happened, what would have happened, what their intentions were, what they were there for. But she created that reality. That was why they were there. That was what they were going to take. They weren't going to hurt them. They were going to leave. When it comes then into action, oh, it's speech. Sorry, I almost forgot our connection to our legal case here. So when is the first time? We're going back now. We just had the thought of the jurors. When is the first time we're going to hear in our murder trial from our jurors? It's going to be when they give their verdict. Generally speaking, there are a few exceptions in certain states where jurors can ask questions. Generally speaking, we don't hear from jurors the entire process until the foreperson is ready to give a verdict. Now, generally speaking, murder trials require a unanimous verdict of all 12 jurors. Yet we have something very interesting that takes place. Four person comes out, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty of murder. Probability that that four person's going to come out and be like, all right, I know he said not guilty, but I'm just going to say guilty and hope nobody does this, right? It's not going to happen. They were just there. They were just deciding. They spent however many days figuring this out. This is the verdict. And yet, at that point, the jury is polled. Each and every juror is asked the same question. Juror number one, what is your verdict? Guilty, sir. Juror number two, what is your verdict? We know it's guilty. It's a unanimous verdict. Four persons said guilty. We know everyone therefore thought guilty. Why do they poll? 
And our judicial system is based very much so on Torah thought. Because you don't own it until you've said it. If you are giving a verdict that could give somebody the death penalty, you better be able to say guilty loud and clear. And if you can't, there is a reason. You can be sure if they get to a juror who hesitates, who stumbles, who mumbles, who can't quite get that word out, something went on back there, Uh uh-uh, not okay. This is not a verdict. You have to be able to say guilty, right? We have it all over our subways. If you see something, say something, right? We're all in this. I think Amtrak had the best. It was something like, we're all in this together. (laughs) You know, like, you really want to say something. One train, you know. Nobody's doing anybody a favor by refusing to talk. And yet we do. We very often refuse to talk because we get embarrassed or we think somebody else took care of it. How many things happen where everybody's standing there with their hands over their mouth, but no one thought to call 911? One of the first things they teach you in any kind of first aid, you better direct people. You better make sure there's someone who knows what to do because otherwise people won't say what needs to be said or take the action that needs to be taken. So they say, you point, the woman in orange, call 911. Woman in blue, we need water. This, otherwise everybody's standing there. <gasps> That's great, real helpful. <laughs> Lots of people who are all worried, but nobody's getting the help that needs to be taken care of. Once we have the verdict, now we still have to go through the sentencing. And when it comes to speech, by the way, you can be sure this person who's just been found guilty isn't going to feel any better if somebody says, I mean, I really thought you were innocent, but I just said guilty, right? Like once you say it, you create that reality. Nobody really cares what you were then thinking, which is actually why we're not allowed to say things, another Interesting aspect of Jewish law when we have no intention of doing them. The reverse is true with action. You are allowed to do the right thing for the wrong reason, but you're not allowed to say the right thing with no intention of doing. What does that mean? It says if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, you will come to do the right thing for the right reason. But to say something because you think it sounds nice or it sounds helpful or it sounds good when you have utterly no intention in following through, oh, sure, I'll totally be there tomorrow to help you out. No, I won't. <laughs> like, you can't do it, even when it seems to be very friendly, right? So if somebody moves into your neighborhood, they utterly drive you crazy, but you kind of feel like you should be nice and have them over for dinner, but you don't really want to. And then you hear, oh, you know, um, they're going out of town next weekend. You're like, oh, perfect. <laughs> right? So you go up and you say, hey, I have wanted to have you over for dinner for so long. But, like, our schedule's crazy. I mean, we're booked for, like, the next five years. But next weekend, <laughs> we are free and we would love to have you over. Not allowed to do it. Can't do it. Nope. Seems nice. Sounds nice. Nope. 
Can you have them over even if you don't want to? Yes. Because by having them over, guess what? You might actually get to know them, get to like them, realize there are things you misjudged, and now by doing the right thing, it will change how you think about it. So now we go into action, our final level. We have Hamaisa Hua Iker. It's ultimately the action that counts, right? If somebody walking by ends up helping and had no intention of helping and never said they were going to help, but they helped, they helped, all the difference, right? I can have the best intentions. I can be thinking about you all day long. I can be calling and telling you I'm going to be there to help. If I don't show up, my well wishes and thoughts are not ultimately so helpful. So Hamaisa Huayker, it's ultimately the action that counts. And yet we see, beautifully enough, that uh, the action is intrinsically related to the other two. So back to our trial. Now we're going to have the sentencing. So now it's going to be determined what kind of repercussions there are. We know the person was found guilty of murder. Is this person essentially going to walk free or spend his or her life in prison and possibly get the death penalty? So the determining factor in that goes right back to thought. What was this person thinking before he committed the crime? What was this person thinking while he committed the crime? And what was this person thinking after he committed the crime? If it is determined that the person was not thinking before, during, or after, it is the legal definition of insanity. And therefore, the person is not held accountable. Not to say there are no repercussions for that and they will get the help they need. They're not accountable if they weren't thinking. What's the worst predicament there is? Thinking before, during, and after. What is that? Premeditated. We're supposed to be premeditated beings. Not murderers, obviously. But we're supposed to think before we do things, while we do them, after we do them. When that is something we're accountable for, in the trial situation, it's the worst of the worst. And law even has stipulations. You weren't thinking of doing something before, right? We talked about an affair of the heart. There's also legal, uh, not loopholes, but situations of, of acting out emotionally where there was no premeditated desire to do it. Somebody wasn't thinking of doing anything. They just walked home, came into their house, saw a situation that totally overwhelmed them, you know, punched the guy, his head hit the, you know, uh, concrete on his way down, he dies. Guy picks up the phone, calls 911. I was thinking fine before. I was thinking clearly after. I was not thinking clearly during. Right? So we have all these different types of things. But we are most definitely intended to be thinking before, during, and after. And it doesn't matter where we start. If we change how we act, and we simply do the right things, 
right? Nike coined it perfectly. Just do it. Just get out there. Just do what's healthy. Just force yourself to go to the gym. And guess what? You're going to work out and you're going to fetch every single second in the car and you're going to be miserable your entire workout. And at a certain point, those endorphins are going to kick in and you're going to get energized and you're going to feel better. And then, wow, maybe a few mornings later, once you're not miserably sore, you might actually want to go to the gym. So if you change how you act, it will end up changing how you think and how you speak about it. If you change how you speak, I'm going to be positive today. I'm going to say only affirming things. I'm going to go out of my way to compliment 10 people. I'm going to make sure that I don't let myself get upset and I'm speaking in a healthy, positive, productive way all day long. I'm going to start thinking and feeling differently. I'm going to start acting differently. And if I work on my thoughts, likewise, that's going to end up affecting my speech and affecting my action. So to just end with a blessing, and then, well, you should have a few minutes for questions. This is a blessing that was given to the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe by his father at his bar mitzvah. He said, in life, you should always remember three things. Don't fool others. Don't let others fool you. But most importantly, don't fool yourself. You are the only one who knows what your thoughts are. You are the only one who has the ability to control them, to change them, and to transform them. So we should be blessed to have healthy, positive, uplifting, transformative thoughts that translates into healthy and positive and transformative speech and ultimately healthy, positive, and transformative action. So thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.